this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. My next guest, Nate Broughton, sold Spread Effect in 2014. You know, it's interesting. Spread Effect was a business that had grown successfully, grown to almost $4 million in revenue when Nate decided it wasn't going to fulfill his ultimate goals and they decided to sell. And as you'll hear in the story, uh, he sold it for a relatively low, in fact, a, a very low multiple. And you know, when I first started writing up this introduction, I was going to write about, you know, all the things that, you know, he could have done differently to get a better multiple. In actual fact, I actually think he played it perfectly. He had something he wanted to go do uh, that he was really excited about. And in the end, that's what he decided to do and, and take the multiple that he could get for his business out of the gate. Uh, for you, that may not be the right decision. Uh, you may find that by hiring a banker to create some competitive tension for your deal, you'll get a better multiple. Uh, you may also get a better multiple for, you know, by not sharing what you're willing to sell your business with, with your buyer. Uh, you might be able to get better terms than Nate got. Uh, so lots of lessons within this story. But ultimately, I for one think Nate did the right thing. He had something else he wanted to go do, and it was more important for him to get a clean and quick exit than to necessarily hold out for the best multiple. Either way, lots of great lessons in this podcast with Nate Broughton. Nate Broughton, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Now, you are a prolific entrepreneur. You've had lots of different exits, but today I think we're going to talk about spread effect. What does the company Spread Effect do? Spread Effect is uh, basically a database of publishers. We're a middleman between uh, marketing agencies, marketing teams that want to publish content, whether it's for PR, for for SEO, for for whatever they're running. We uh, aggregated a lot of publisher relationships over the years in different categories. We categorized them into travel, finance, um, you know, mommy blogs, sports, what have you. And uh, it was actually, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's always a nice little uh, area of the world people want to get to. But, um, but yeah, it was uh, a product of me doing my own marketing for my own businesses for several years. Um, We were in finance and and travel, so we were kind of heavy there, but, um, but we were doing that work and reaching out to publishers and setting up relationships. And we got to the point where we realized we had a bunch of these things aggregated and all of my friends who owned agencies wanted to utilize them. So we kind of productized it made it a service where we could uh, you know, have editorial control and editorial relationship, I guess, with a, a blog or news website, get something published for a client, and uh, that was the product. Got it. So it was more than just a listing service. So, so you had a relationship with the publisher that you could literally place content on their site. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and we could uh, editorial do that where we we had you know we built this software to to power the whole thing where we like could categorize them as I described, but also kind of know what the editorial calendars were for some of these sites, what their posting requirements were, and a lot of them were just looking for good content. I mean, it's you know it's a game of content, and it's hard to find people that can contribute good content. So um, we just kind of played up to that and middleman for the client. And there was always um, final control on the publisher side to decide what they wanted to publish, but um, that's how we facilitated. And what was the business model? Who paid who for what? The agencies paid us uh, almost like as a, a service provider. Um, I think a lot of agencies outsource things like they, they're kind of an aggregator of clients, right? And they might have in-house design or web development, or that might be something they outsource. And then we just became to function a functional tool for a lot of those teams to go to and say, you know, this is easier than us having an in-house person doing blog outreach. Um, to to set up these relationships, or it's hard for us to aggregate the writers. And really, I think the challenge too is just uh, understanding the editorial process with each individual site. Um, that can be a, a drag and take a lot of time. When you're an agency, usually you have a monthly deliverable for your clients, and you're kind of always trying to show them something to keep them around. And I think we help them do that. And so, what would an agency pay you to subscribe to Spread Effect? Uh, the pricing changed a lot in our, our young history, actually, uh, as far as, you know, if we had a subscription based thing where it was X thousand dollars per month, um, or we would do kind of one off things for different publishers. It was also a little bit difficult because kind of every publisher was worth something a little bit different to, uh, to different agencies, uh, to different clients. So, you know, something in the finance space might be worth a lot more than one of those mommy blogs that we were kind of laughing about. But, um, but yeah, it was a fluid pricing that we always try, we're trying to nail down, but to, to sync succinctly say it was, they're probably paying a couple thousand dollars a month. Some of them were up to 10 or $15,000 a month. And the individual articles were, were in the hundreds of dollars for most publishers. So I get the agency paying a couple thousand dollars a month for for the service. Um, mm -hmm. Where does the price per uh, article come in? Who's paying that to who? They are still like that's still a payment to us. We would just try to fulfill a certain number of articles for that um, dollar amount that they were providing, and the pricing itself was just driven by how popular the site was, the category it was in how much effort it was going to take on our side to kind of um, facilitate the whole thing. If we had to pay a writer, I mean, our hard costs are um, maintaining the database, maintaining a kind of reps to uh, be doing outreach to these bloggers and news websites. Um, and then on the editorial side and the writing side, we had pretty high costs just writing and producing the content. So what was the, like, what kind of margins were you working on in the business? Like, what, it would, were you, were you, like, were you netting double digit profit? Like, how, give me a sense of how, how profitable the company was. Well, like most businesses, when we started, I thought it'd be wildly profitable, but, um, but now it, it turned out to be pretty traditional. I was actually thinking about that this morning. Like the, the final bottom line was, you know, in that, you know, 18 to 25%, I think, uh, never outside of that range at the end of the day. So it ended up being fairly traditional. I think our costs were, I mean, the, the process I just described, I'm not really sure if it sounds like a painstaking process, but it is to kind of aggregate all those things and, and try to tur turn out product every couple of weeks for these agencies. You know, we just had really high um, people costs at the end of the day. And when did you start it? 2010. And when did you sell it? 2014. That's a four-year gestation period. That's uh, I yeah. think some animals uh, are pregnant for, <laughs> for longer than four years. Right, <laughs> Maybe not right. longer than that four. But that's a pretty short hold time. What what triggered you to want to sell so quickly? 
You know, it's uh, it's funny because some of my other exits have been similarly short. So I don't know if I've got a serial issue with this, but uh, but but I think when I think back on Spread Effect, I was coming out of uh, a business that was highly successful. Um, I'm, I'm from Missouri originally, then I moved to California, and we had a mortgage company there that I was the CMO of that we'd grown from nothing to. God, I don't know, 85 million in revenue, I think, when I left, and now it's several hundred million of revenue. And uh, just having that experience in my 20s and uh, having a lot of success at that time, Spread Effect was the next thing that I did. And I think that my expectations for it, along with my partners who kind of came from the same place, was that we wanted to build something that was worth 20, 30, 50 million dollars. Spread Effect grew really fast in the first couple of years. Um, I think you know we'd say we were doing pretty well. People would be happy if you could climb to a couple million in revenue right out of the gate. Um, but ultimately, we were—I think—we were comparing it to a past success that was uh, what we thought, and at the time, in our hubris and our youth, that could be replicated over and over. And uh, we were kind of quick to pull the trigger because I think we were like, "This is never going to be big enough for us. We have higher ambitions." What can we do with it now? And so, how big was it when you sold it in 2014 in terms of top line revenue? I think it was going to push about four million that year. Got it. Okay, so you're you're you've, you're thinking like, what were the signs that that you thought? You know what this this can't grow. This can't become a 20 million, 30, 40 million dollar company. Like, what what it what was it that made you realize that? I think it was two things. One, I mean, we were just kind of middlemanning the middleman in a way. And uh, the, our margins weren't as strong as we thought they were going to be. Um, not that they weren't unhealthy, but it felt like to grow, we were just going to have to, you know, we have to have a team of 50, a team of 75, a team of 100 and try to productize this thing that's not truly a product. We're just doing a lot of grunt work for an agency and aggregating all these publishers and getting these things published. I also thought, think that scaling it um, to, you know, 10 times the size would not only require that many people, but also that many publishers. And it gets to the point where if you're, you're working with a, a bunch of uh, high-end travel sites, like you can only publish so much per month. Like this isn't like a, a spam engine. Um, we were play, doing premium content, we call it. That was one of our taglines. And I think just scaling that to something 10, $20 million just seemed impossible um, because the the throughput on on the publisher side was going to be hard to work, and just having that many people didn't sound that much fun either. When you've got the internal problems of you know 10, 20, 30 people, you know I, I'd seen what it was like to have 300, 400, and in that business, I just didn't quite have the appetite for it. And there's one other thing too. It was uh, the business itself. Like a, a portion of our clients were were doing it for search engine optimization, and that that changes all the time. You know, every couple of years there's a, a new trend, and you know people wanted this type of site. Now they want to build links on another type of site, and it's uh, you know you're going against Google in some ways. It's this battle between marketers and their algorithms, and that wasn't a world I necessarily wanted to play in. I didn't want to go out there and get called out for being someone that was trying to help someone um, manipulate the search algorithms. That's like not exactly a business I want to be in long term. So all of those things were signs to be like, this isn't something that we're going to keep until we're 50 years old and, and try to make work. Who's the we? Who owned the business spread effect? I had a, I had two other partners. I had kind of a, a silent investor partner who was on the East Coast, who was a big blogger who who helped us, and then also my partner Brandon Lawfridge, who was someone who had came and worked for me, and my uh, mentors when he was in college on the mortgage business and a couple other things. So we we met when he was eighteen, and by the time he was twenty two, twenty three, graduating college, we 
decided that we needed to start a business together on the side and, and do some stuff together um, because there wasn't room for him inside of our larger company. So that was kind of part of the genesis for being like, let's start something. What can we figure out? And kind of spread effect was that thing. Was that your first experience with partners? I mean, I know it, as the CMO of the mortgage company, um, you were part of the obviously leadership team and, and certainly deeply integrated, but is, was this your first time working with a partner uh, partner group as a CEO? It was the... It was the first time working with a partner outside of that initial group. You know, we actually, we had a couple others. I mean, being internet people, we were always kind of starting things on the side in the early 2000s with kind of that same group back in Missouri. So yeah, it was the first time I'd partnered off on my own with with a new person who wasn't like one of the guys I came up with, so to speak. Got it. Got it. And so tell me about the exit. So you, you've you got this business up to almost $4 million, you know, seven or $800,000 in profit, sounds like, maybe, maybe more. What... Where did you go next? What was the did you did you take it to market? Like, how did you take it to market? Did you hire representation? Like, what was the next step? We didn't hire representation actually, and in looking back, um, that may have been a good move. Um, there was interest, uh, you know, a year and a half into the business, we were networking a lot, and we were at conferences, and there was definitely interest from some larger agencies and some larger uh, people with VC money um, who were in the space, whether it was a, a tool provider or a SaaS provider that kind of wanted to bolt it on. Um, so that got us kind of excited and early. And then the process was really just reaching out to um, my contacts and, and, and our clients as well. Um, so it was just kind of like started shopping around simple emails to people like, Brandon and I are looking at going off and doing something else and private equity, and it's already kind of starting to happen. We'd like to make a move on spread effect. You spend a lot of money with us, or you know the space really well. You know, would you be interested? And it was kind of as simple as that. Um, How much were these big customers spending with you in a month? The largest customer ever spent about eighty thousand a month for a, a pretty uh, extended run, but uh, but I'd say anyone that was spending about twenty thousand, twenty five thousand a month was a large customer. So you reach out to these guys saying, "Hey, Brandon and I are thinking of going doing something else." You know, were you were you worried about undermining Spread Effect as a company by doing that? Like the leadership's got you know got its eye off the ball, so to speak. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think that would have been a, a valid concern, but but no, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that at all. <laughs> but but good for you. So you're you're reaching out to some of your biggest customers, uh, and uh -huh. again, the, the email was something to the effect of "We're thinking about going to do something else." And and I'd love to just know um, because there's always this dance for a lot of our listeners. Like, how do you approach and acquire without sounding desperate? <laughs> I think I, I went to people who I felt like I had a close relationship with and tried to get them excited about the opportunity first before we were ever talking about, you know, my personal situation beyond, you know, I'm thinking about this. Uh, it was kind of like, you know, wouldn't you like to have your hands on on this database, on this asset? Wouldn't it be cool to have this in-house? Um, you know, you'd cut your costs down significantly. Um, you'd be able to leverage this to uh, to go after other clients or keep it as a separate business unit. A lot of these people also are agencies. And in my experience, a lot of agencies get paid off a, a one to two X multiple of their top line revenue. Um, and and sometimes, you know, they're just the traditional four to five of the bottom line. But these guys are usually on a shorter timeline too. And it's like, if I if they're like, if I can pick up a couple million on my top line by adding this in-house service and cut down my cost and using it. Um, that's an interesting thing to add to part of my story of my horizons two to three years out taxes as well. So I think the conversation was quickly moving towards that versus 
I'm burned out. I don't like this. I got to move on. You know, just give me whatever you can give me sort of thing. Yeah. So it's all about them as opposed to obviously about, about you. Uh, yeah. So what was the reaction? Did you get any bites from your emails? Yeah, I got a, a probably two or three people that were highly interested right out of the gate. And, uh, and the process didn't take that long. I think it was about a three, uh, I'm trying to think back, three month process from uh, conversation to close. And um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty short compared to running a process, obviously, with a banker and taking LOIs, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So you had, you had three or you know, a handful of interested parties. Did you go to the next step and meet with them all, kind of formally lay out the business? What was the next step in the process? I kind of had my own little SIM or CRM or whatever you want to call it package put together. SIM um, being ready confidential to go. information memorandum from my listeners. SIM is a confidential information memorandum when you package up your business, make it sound sexy, and uh, and share it with potential acquirers. Right, right, right. Yes, thanks for clarifying that. Um, yeah, I kind of had that kind of mapped out a short one, one that I would kind of appreciate and like, and then I felt like my audience would. I wasn't writing twenty pages about our background and showing pictures of the building and stuff, but I was like, <laughs> these are the financials, you know, like. These are what I think the adjustments are, but I understand being on the other side of the table that, you know, we're not playing with goofy adjusted EBITDA here or anything. Um, so it was, it was just basically a straightforward couple pages, like, here's what I'm thinking. If this resonates, like, you know, now that we've had this conversation, let's let's meet. And I kind of sent that out. And there was an interested party that was here locally and uh, that um, put them much higher uh, than, than some of the other ones because I was concerned about the uh, the people. Um, you know, a lot of the people that worked at Spread Effect were people that I had brought out from Missouri, um, seven or eight of the core, uh, like made them restart their lives in Southern California, which is not a hard sell. But it's <laughs> I was going to say, that doesn't sound like a hard sell to me. Right. Especially because most of them were like 23, 24 years old. So it was uh, like, heck yeah, I want to move out to the beach. But um, but yeah, feeling a responsibility to them and, and thinking and, and having seen transitions in the past that didn't go so well, thinking a, a local acquirer was interested, uh, I wanted to focus on that at the time. Got it. So you pretty quickly zeroed in on this this local company. Um, did you get offers from the other two? Before I ask you that, what did you think it was worth? Like, did you and Brandon have a number that you thought, yeah, they could probably get this for it? Like, was going into the negotiation, what did you think it was worth? I, I thought it was, I didn't think it was a traditional business with, you know, there wasn't a lot of history there. There were some of the issues I described earlier, which uh, hopefully made a little bit of sense. But if you're in the industry, I think you can kind of see as potential red flags of, you know, how long this business can be around. In a lot of ways, it's like an agency where we're just a collection of people with some talent and some clients. So, you know, it's, there's no, there's no assets here. There's no IP necessarily other than just this database of relationships and there's no subscription revenue. So I'm like, all these things to me mean it's it's a low multiple. Um, we had talked to people uh, in 2012 actually who were you know in the one to two million dollar range, um, and I think that was the, they didn't totally understand the business, but you know that that put a number in our head. But honestly, I thought we thought it was worth probably about one to one and a half times the uh, the the net income from the business, and we thought if we priced it cheap and uh, fair that we would be able to more quickly move towards a deal and our eyes were on something else. So we were like, let's go cheap. So, okay. Interesting. So one times net income, certainly that is quite cheap. Um, interesting. So what was driving your thinking there? Uh, was it, it sounds like you really wanted to go do something else and almost like a fire sale. Would that be fair to characterize it that way or? 
Yeah, in retrospect, I think it definitely would be characterized that way. I mean, I've talked to other people who uh, who find, found out later that we had sold it, were disappointed, had wanted to have a shot at it, and then just you know describe the price range as a bit of a fire sale. So yes, I think that's completely accurate, and it was. Uh, it was a function of, um, I mean, being young, being uh, interested in doing something else. We we had already kind of started doing some private equity stuff where we were partnered with a private equity firm doing some acquisitions while we still had this business. So it was, uh, it was like, let's just not cut our losses, but you know, that was a good run. Let's take what we can get. Our eyes are on much bigger things down the line and it's okay because we've got time and energy to, to go get them. <laughs> Got it. And so this is the conversation you had. Did you ask, I guess the ultimate acquirer was Elevated Search. Is that the San Diego-based company? Correct. Yeah. Got it. So did you did you put your number in front of them and say, hey, this is kind of what we want for the business? Or did they offer first? Like, How did, how did that work? Yeah, we kind of had a little bit of casual back and forth. I know the, uh, the founding team over there pretty well. Um, you know, we've done other things since um, together. And, and yeah, it was kind of like, I, I want you to get a good deal, man. And it's, they're saying the same thing back to me, but I know the math's got to work out. So um, let's structure something that uh, not only is a, a fair price, but also, you know, is, is favorable to, uh, to the acquirer as far as, you know, payouts and stuff. So we, we took a, a structure that had like uh, some cash plus a, a payout over the course of, of 12 months as a bit of a baked in earnout, but um, but yeah, something that was favorable to them as well for for cash flow and to make the deal happen quickly. So did you guys settle in that one, one and a half times net income? Uh, yeah, just right around one, a little bit, uh, actually a little bit less um, than, than one times from the like trailing 12 months. Got it. And then in terms of the cash portion of that, it, can you give me a ballpark like proportionally, what proportion was paid in cash versus on the 12 month sort of future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to do the math in my head. It was it was less than fifty percent actually. So um, you know we're we're like the nicest sellers of all time. I'm like, <laughs> listeners of this podcast, right? Um, yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah the other businesses about, you can buy. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You see why I've sold four companies? I'm like, hey, just buy this thing. Um, yeah, I think it was a thirty five percent. Uh, in that range, 35, 40 up and, front. And then how did you structure, because a lot of my listeners would be interested in structuring of the earnout because they've heard all the horror stories, right? About, you know, not right. getting the earnout because, uh, you know, the, the, the targets moved or they're impossible to hit. How did you structure your earnout or the other 65%? Um, it was primarily based on gross revenue. Um, and I'm trying, I don't think that there was even a net component, but uh, we had a little bit of prediction baked in because I mean, almost anything you threw out there, we're like, well, the other side could game that this way. Um, but it was primarily on a, a gross revenue number that was uh, just maintaining that. And I think it was a little bit lower than our, our lowest point of the previous 12 months. Uh, we had a relatively high level of confidence in that because the acquirer was one of the larger clients. They were going to use it more. They had a larger, a new fresh network of people that they could go kind of shop the service to. And then we also had our, our team there that we were, you know, I still worked out of the office for the, the 12 months we were there kind of doing my own thing, but keep an eye on things. So it was a bit of a roll of the dice, but I think it was a, just a gross revenue number that just couldn't fall, you know, whatever, 40% from where it was at um, as an average over the last 12 months. And was it a, a tipping basket kind of like, in other words, did you, if it did fall 40%, would you, would you lose everything on the 65%, like lose all of it? Or, or was it sort of scaled back? You'd get only half of your earn out or, or you know, do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, we had, um, so we had like a, a two month window that we could use to try to get it back up, I guess. Um, and, and it's kind of non-traditional in a way, but I, we baked in like a, an extra three or four months and, and maybe like a two month window that we could use at any point in time to say these months don't count and we could try to come in and push it back up. Got it. And Elevated was one of the customers of the service. And and they had said that they were going to use it more. How did you ensure that when they used the service, they didn't change it from a you know paid service that they were paying Spread Effect for to well, this is now our company, so we don't have to declare this as revenue. Right, right, right. Uh, we we worked that out as well. Actually, we 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 came up with like just kind of a flat rate for every um, article that they ran through there. Um, so it was definitely going to, they were happy with it for the 12 month period and then they could kind of do whatever they wanted after. And, uh, we were just like, this is what we usually spend. Let's knock it down to a discount and just call everything you do through this system, um, X dollars for the next 12 months. What would you do differently if you had the sale of spread effect to do over again? <sighs> I mean, if, if I could take a step out of where I was like emotionally and the, the momentum we had going in a different direction, I probably would have held on to it longer. I, I see that the business is still around today. Um, it's still successful. It has a bit of a smaller team, but it kind of found its sweet spot. And, uh, you know, looking back, I, you know, I mentioned we, we wanted to be worth tens of millions of dollars and build businesses that were that size. And we just didn't think spread effect was that. You know, it's not a bad thing to have a business, especially if you have a good team in place that throws off a couple million in revenue and is putting money in your pocket for for a while, um, as long as it's not holding you back too much from the other things you're trying to um, achieve. And I think we could have found that balance. I think just at the time, it seemed too hard to pull that off. So I guess, you know, looking back, I would say go slower, slow down, um, hopefully try to look around over the trees a little bit and realize that you'd aggregated a, a good service with a lot of good clients, a lot of good people. And, you know, maybe it wasn't time to, to run out um, and sell. Interesting. But it, but it's opened a lot of doors for you to do other things. Tell me about the podcast, the new, you know, the new site and, and some of the things you're doing now. That's true. You know, I, it's hard to feel, feel too much regret towards selling it because it did free me up to go off and, you know, we did some acquisitions. We learned how to do that. And then we, we started a couple other businesses and, and where I'm at today, I, you know, I recently sold a, a Legion company that I had in February and I was, uh, decided I was tired of doing business business. And, uh, I had a partner, a local guy who I'd done a lot of, uh, parties and networking events with here in San Diego, who'd taken a year off, moved to Bali. And he wrote a book called opt out. And it was just his philosophy on life, um, not just the story of going to Bali, but kind of how he's hacked together an income and, uh, and live this, this rich life without necessarily being a guy who, who was rich on paper. And uh, I loved it. And we decided to turn it into a podcast called Opt Out Life. And that's what I do right now. You know, I'm interviewing other entrepreneurs who are, who are like me and who have like-minded approach to kind of figuring out how to do their own business, to, to still be able to have a good lifestyle before they achieve some great financial success. I'm kind of, you know, living it up along the way. And, uh, and it's fun. It's fun. It's, you know, it's, it's different than having to deal with uh, a ton of different customers or licensing issues or whatever else that comes along. It's kind of lean and mean and, you know, it's not, it's fun doing podcasts, right? You know, John. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, <laughs> I, I commend you on the work because I think so many entrepreneurs in particular, perhaps people on the corporate grind as well, but I think entrepreneurs in particular are susceptible to this idea that, you know, life is going to be great when I sell. Um, mm -hmm. You know, life is going to be perfect when I've got that big, you know, check in, in the bank. 
And and of course, you're really proposing and, and, and encouraging people to think about, hey, don't put life on hold. It can be great now as well. You don't have to. It, it, getting the kind of idea of the book and the, the movement of the podcast, right? Yeah, no, that that's exactly it. You know, we're trying to feature stories of entrepreneurs that we know that are that aren't doing that, that are in their 30s and their 40s that are, you know, taking time off to 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 travel now, to to spend time with their kids now, to to do all those things that are on the bucket list while they're they're still young and and have the energy to do it. And yeah, also I've kind of been on the other side of that where I've gotten some big checks and that wears off after you know, 10 days or something, it doesn't last long. And then you're like, I got to go out and do something. So, so yeah, encouraging people to do that. And, and my partner in the business has done that really, really well, um, throughout his life. Um, you know, I think from the outside looking in, you'd always be like, oh, this guy did something right. He, you know, he sold a business for $20 million and that that's just not true. I think you can set up your life in a way to, to live, to live good now and not when you're 65. The podcast is called Opt Out Life. Nate Broughton, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, John. It's fun. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.